I'm going to speak a little bit about some early experiences that I think led to the writing of my novel, uh, Matter of My Time. Um, and I'll speak then about the book itself a little bit, about some of the, the central themes, as I see them at least. And I'll read a couple of um, short passages from it. Um, one will be about five to six minutes long, the other about a minute or two, so not too long. And then at the end, of course, we can take questions if there are any. So um, my earliest memory of displacement occurred on my first day of kindergarten in Tehran. Everyone was speaking French, a language I didn't yet understand. For my four-year-old brain, the first minutes became a scene from Monsieur Hulot's holiday, strange people walking around and mumbling incomprehensible words. My teacher, a sweet blonde leggy woman wearing a pair of 1970s shaggy fur boots that seemed to me like puppies attached to her feet, carried the entire day in French to the delight, no doubt, of the diplomats' kids who must have believed that they had never left home and the bafflement of the rest of us who could not help but wonder if we weren't a little bit stupid. How else to explain the fact that we had lost seemingly overnight our ability to understand what was going on around us? I say we out of speculation because I have no idea if my fellow classmates felt as I did. I felt too stupid to ask them. I didn't even consult with my older sister who was enrolled in the same school and had a couple of years lead on me in the estrangement department. This was, I should add, an estrangement for which my family, as so many others, had willfully signed up. A decision resulting from a belief among some that the West, France especially, was a source of cultural enlightenment. In part, a legacy of the Bajar kings and their rapport with Europe and of Reza Shah's later, later efforts to modernize Iranian education and society, this belief was also, among Jews especially, a byproduct of the influence of the Alliance Israelite Universelle, founded in the 19th century by the Jews of France, among them actually Adolf Crémieux, who was a great uncle of Marcel Proust. This organization's goal was to uplift through education, especially the condition of Middle Eastern Jews including the Jews of Tehran, who at that time were largely relegated to the ghetto or the Mahale, as it was known. The first Alliance school opened in Tehran in 1898, offering Jewish children and eventually children of all religions a formal European education. But historical explanations aside, I had a problem on my hands. I understood nothing. I decided to learn the language so well that I would one day pass as a native. I even began fantasizing about those shaggy boots. And in time, I did pick up the language. I sang nursery rhymes about an imagined and drew Father Christmas, coloring him red. bring this home to my mother, who had herself been bred in a Tehran Catholic school named Jeanne d'Arc, founded by the French Catholic Daughters of Charity of Saint-Vincent-de-Paul, and had grown up singing hymns to the Virgin Mary in the school choir. 
So nothing strange was going on there as far as we were all concerned. But determination, I realized by the time I reached grade school would not be enough as language alone did not hold the entry pass to belonging. More relevant was a body of knowledge of films and books and cartoons and jokes and history, what the French sociologist Pierre Bourdieu has termed cultural capital. Who was Jean de La Fontaine? Surely something more than an image on a stamp stuck to my mother's old correspondences with a friend from Brittany. Who were Catherine Deneuve and Johnny Halliday? When I admitted to a French classmate that I'd never heard of Maurice Chevalier, she was stunned. Shame only fueled me further. Language, I told myself, was nothing more than a passport. The hard work began once you were admitted. But admitted where? Belonging is a placeless place, something akin to a mirror. In it, you see a reflection that is in fact nothing more than an optical illusion. Belonging is a destination to which one cannot fully arrive. Complicating the situation was that alongside this French reality were several others. The reality of my Iranian self in Tehran, the reality of my father's origins in Baghdad exhibited through Egyptian magazines with names like Al-Wasat and Al-Watan that arrived for him weekly in the mail, his anecdotes of a boyhood along the Tigris, and the story of his escape from Baghdad during the Farhud, a two-day uprising against Jews in the summer of 41. And finally, the reality of our Jewish religion, of which I was reminded during holidays that set us apart from our Muslim friends and neighbors, but passed quickly and without much fuss. While I learned to navigate this archipelago, jumping from one context to another, I always docked home in Tehran. If all of my other realities were made up of abstractions, memorized concepts, learned manners, and genealogical inheritances, Tehran was made up of bricks and stone, a physical place that contained, among other things, my language, my history, my memory, and a white villa on Vanak Square, a space that my parents, my brothers, my sister, and I called home. What disrupted that home is a well-known story a revolution, family separations, imprisonment, transit through strange countries, immersion in the shapes of foreign cities, the slipping in and out of multiple languages. An entire generation has lived versions of this story. For me, if life prior to this disruption was already dissonant, the loss of a physical home that continued not only my history, but also the shape of my future only added to my sense of incongruity. This incongruity was not simply internal. It was also reflected in a legal status that would become increasingly ambiguous. Since my parents' passports had been confiscated by the authorities in Iran, my father in, in 1982, in a final attempt to have us escape the country, had sat one night at the dining room table with my passport, removed my photograph, and using lemon juice and cotton balls had erased my name and all corresponding identifying information from the document. Then in a practice script designed to resemble the existing handwriting on the page, he had written all our names with a meticulous list of a medieval scribe and turned the passport into a family document. 
and the accompanying group photo had sealed the forgery. As I watched myself being erased and written back in, I remember feeling not only awe at my father's ingenuity, but also a cer certain anxiety that I could not yet name, a feeling of slipping into a negative space. Between that document and my eventual American passport, there would be a decade of signatures and fingerprints, affidavits and interviews, stamps and seals. In an earlier incarnation, the American document was a green card. And before that, it was a bloodless certificate that matter of factly designated us as stateless, the condition described by Hannah Arendt as the loss of an individual's right to have rights. And there was a time earlier still when it did not exist at all. That initial state of civic non-being, though long resolved, has continued to reverberate in my life as though the memory of having once been erased from the world's archives were as irreversible as a close encounter with death. I arrived in New York in August, 1983. I spent my initial weeks considering my new life attempting to shape it into hasty forms that just as quickly came undone, subsisting in a kind of desperate euphoria, one that, as I would discover decades later, sometimes precedes the onset of prolonged grief. As my parents began looking for an apartment and sent out for French private school brochures for me and my sister, the two of us did not yet speak a word, a word of English, and it was decided that it would, it would be best for us to continue our French education. I pictured myself in various school uniforms and apartments and neighborhoods in combinations as mystifying and dizzying as a Rubik's cube. In the ensuing months, after we moved into a new apartment and gradually settled in, taking weekend family trips to Macy's to buy sofas and lamps and beds and teacups, I became decidedly apolitical. Having already witnessed a revolution and the beginning of a bloody war between Iran and Iraq, I thought I had experienced all the politics I would ever need. Enrolled at the Lycée Français, I lost myself in tales of the French Revolution and the texts of Molière and Victor Hugo, whose politics I thought then were within a safe distance in time and place. With my shoddy English, the most I grasped from the evening news was Ronald Reagan wagging his finger from the television screen at someone or something, possibly us. Unlike any leader I had known in my own country or those from neighboring nations, the Shah, Khomeini, Saddam Hussein, Anwar Sadat, Menachem Begin, all of whom had creases of torment on their faces, the American president seemed by contrast to be a man with an impervious, robust health. This sturdiness unsettled me, though I had no idea why. I only knew that it stood at odds with the howls I sometimes heard coming from my parents' bedroom during the night, the familiar sound of my father having yet another bottomless nightmare, the kind I would inherit from him decades later. Eventually, of course, I learned English and found my way around the American landscape. But I did so by continuing to live in two tenses, the present, what is, and the conditional, what could have been. These then are the incongruities with which I arrived to writing. In my first novel, The Septembers of Shiraz, which recounts the story of a man wrongly imprisoned in the immediate aftermath of the revolution, I was driven 
um, by a desire to make some sense of the mess of memory. And this novel was largely um, uh, influenced by some personal experience, my family's personal experiences. Um, I believe that the act of writing, like memory itself, could help the fill, to fill the crack in the interrupted life that space between present and past. In writing the novel, I not only excavated my own fragmented memory, I also turned to my father's memory, historical documents, accounts of imprisonment, and photographic books of pre- and post-revolutionary Iran. The novel, once completed, initially brought me a certain level of calm. But after its publication, I realized that my attempt to connect fragments and assign to them a meaning had done little more than further dissolve the whole. I also felt, as many writers no doubt do, that by writing of loss, grief, and disintegration in a novel that had inev inevitably become one more commodity in the American consumerist marketplace, I had betrayed grief, my own and others, peddling it for recognition and awards. As I began a second novel, I could not help feeling that for every narrative, there was a counter narrative. For every context, there was a parallel, equally valid context. The narrative itself was an attempt by individuals, families, tribes, and nations to assign meaning to themselves where no meaning exists. My own discordant past confirmed this, or did an I regularly jump from one context to another from one identity to another, shifting my point of view along the way. Needless to say that this state of mind did little to advance my novel. I wrote compulsively, but the narrative and infinity mirror grew horizontally, rooms endlessly opening onto new rooms. When a friend asked how the book was going, I said, I have too much and not enough, by which I meant that I was trying to contain the world in one book but this world had no center. It was then that I realized that maybe I too had been emptied of my center. I found myself during this time increasingly drawn back to Iran. I told myself that if I could not return physically, I could at least do so culturally. I had always been a film junkie and my consumption of Iranian films only increased. I also played Tehran radio on my phone almost daily listening to Iranian news or game shows while getting ready in the morning, living a bizarre double life as I imagined the reported traffic on Hemat Expressway or Chamran Highway, places that I had not seen in decades, but that seemed to me to be just outside my door. I continued my lifelong consumption of political dramas, films like Kostagavras' Z, who explored alienation, displacement, and exile, including Danilo Kish, Imre Kertes, Franz Kafka, and Eva Hoffman. Danilo Kish, above all, absorbed me because he was equally devoted to historical facts and to language and style. Born in 1935 in Subotica, the former Austro-Hungarian city that had become a Yugoslav border town and would in 1989 become part of Serbia, Kish had, a, had an Eastern Orthodox Montenegrin mother and a Hungarian Jewish father, a railroad inspector who was deported to Auschwitz in 1944. 
This disappearance would become the driving force behind much of his writings, whose primary focus was persecution, especially the Holocaust and Stalinist purges. Historical events he considered too horrific to be presented as either entirely invented tales or wholly realistic fiction. I don't believe a writer has a right to give in to fantasy, he, he said in one interview. After everything the history of the 20th century has dealt us, it is clear that fantasy and hence romanticism has lost all its meaning. Modern history has created such authentic forms of reality that today's writer has no choice but to give them artistic shape, to invent them if need be. That is to use authentic data as raw material and endow them through the imagination with new form. In Garden Ashes, Kish depicted the vanishing world of Hungarian Jews through the disappearance of one man, Edward Sham, a half-mad eccentric railroad inspector compiling a new edition of the railway timetable that grows into a monstrous manuscript, striving to include, quote, all cities, all land areas and all the seas, all the skies, all climates, all meridians, an apocryphal sacral Bible in which the miracle of Genesis was repeated, yet in which all divine injustices and the impotence of man were rectified." End quote. The sprawling manuscript remains unpublished, only adding to Sham's despair. One of the most chilling passages in Garden Ashes is that of Edward Sham's arrest while he's napping in the forest. A double-barreled shotgun is placed at the small of his back, making him sit up and surrender. It is at that moment that his young son, Andy, merges with his father, for the eye of the narrator suddenly becomes weak. As Kish writes, a woodpecker was drumming away over our heads. Tap, 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 tip, 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 tap, 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 tip, 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 tip. It could be interpreted as a bad omen. My father had the same thought for he turned his head in that direction cautiously as if deciphering a message in Morse code. Andy at that moment enters his father's head. My father had the same thought. And we know that the consumption of the son by the soon to be vanished father is now complete. And as Edward Sham, a one-time railway employee who is familiar with Morse code, decrypts the news of his own death as delivered by the woodpecker so does Andy, who having merged with his father, will from that moment on look for clues, codes, and patterns in order to make sense of an otherwise senseless existence. The pervasive sense of a near vanishing in Garden Ashes fascinated me. In Edward Sham's mad, sprawling, unpublished manuscript, I saw a reflection of my own. And Andy's merging with his father at the moment of his father's arrest was uncannily familiar to me. For had an eye like Andy and Kish become psychologically inseparable from my own father from the moment of his arrest, having gone so far as to embody him in a novel through a fictional character named Isaac Amin. What constituted Kish's genius though was not, in, was not his ability to capture historical and psychological reality, but to do so through narrative doubling, mirror images and uncanny experiences. In the summer of 2016, as I sat at my desk on a tired, hot August afternoon, I heard within myself the voice of an indignant, disillusioned ex-revolutionary 
the voice of the man who would become Hamid Muzaffarian, the pr protagonist of my novel, Man of My Time. I began writing with an urgency I hadn't felt in years, giving in to whatever was coming up, exasperation, sorrow, grievance. Over the ensuing months and years, as I continued writing and researching and watching the world of the novel taking shape, I felt like I was at last creating a narrative experiences, a narrative conflict, not only among disparate groups and individuals, but also within one single man is at the very center. Man of My Time is the story of Hamid Mozafarian, who begins life as a solitary boy, alienated from his family, grows up to be a revolutionary, and after an irreversible act of betrayal against his father, who works for the Shah's Ministry of Culture, gets involved with the new government, working for decades as an interrogator, and eventually, when he can no longer justify his own actions to himself, as an official in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. At the book's beginning, Hamid travels on a diplomatic mission to New York, where he encounters his estranged family after 38 years of separation and retrie retrieves the ashes of his father, whose final wish was to be buried in Iran. The conflicts I explore in the book are many. They are between the revolution and the old regime, the upper classes and the lower ones, revolutionaries among themselves, youth of multiple generations and the old guard, artists and censors, governments and people, history and historiography, East and West. But more importantly, they are between father and son, mother and son, brother and brother, husband and wife, father and daughter, and a man with himself. As I wrote the book, I tried to rest in a fluid zone between opposing sides each side simultaneously victim and perpetrator, actor and subject. This isn't to say that I believe there are no just behaviors or unjust actions. Rather, it makes the argument that humans are incapable of being entirely one or the other. A perpetrator can be a victim of history and of his own unbridled emotions. A victim can be a perpetrator toward other victims or even toward himself. Likewise, each character's actions have a ripple effect on his own life and on the lives of others, also on his own future and the futures of others. Finally, the actions of others create the world that envelops each character. Among the central conflicts in the book is the one between Hamid and his father, Sadeh. Sadeh, born in contested waters on the Chateau Arab or Arvandrud, is to a part Arab mother, carries lifelong shame regarding his provenance. A pro-Mossadegh youth who studied art history in the 1950s, he gradually compromises his ideals, taking a job in the Shah's Ministry of Culture and betraying a university friend named Hushang Habibi, also known as H, who became a subversive cartoonist. The magnum opus of Sadegh's life is a comprehensive encyclopedia of Persian art which he compiles obsessively over several decades. Keenly aware of chaos, yet perennially trying to contain it, Saudi Muzaffarian is a man eager to create order in a world that's constantly threatening to topple. Hamid, timid and hesitant as a boy, is too undisciplined a son for a man like Saudi, and the two constantly clash. 
And yet they are also one another's keepers, each silently mirroring the other. When young Hamid, already an insomniac, sits in the kitchen in the middle of the night and colors a drawing, he's accompanied by his father, who sits with him and reads until sleep overtakes them both and they each retreat to their bedrooms, taking comfort in each other's unspoken vigilance. And throughout the years, the two continue reaching for each other despite a persistent hostility that eventually draws an irreversible wedge between them. In adulthood, Hamid's path begins to mirror that of his estranged father, as he too relinquishes the idealism of his youth and slowly, slowly becomes the system. After his family's departure, Hamid begins to occupy his father's seat at the kitchen table, carries his father's monogrammed cigarette lighter, and for decades compulsively wears his father's old shirling coat. As he keeps repeating to himself, everything goes back to its origin. The question of origins too is at the heart of this novel. Saadel, the father, is obsessed with the origin of objects, of stories, of history, even though he is aware that there is no absolute knowable origin to anything and that new discoveries will always overwrite the old. His encyclopedia is one attempt to get at the origin of things. Another is his obsession with the Epic of Gilgamesh, the oldest known preserved written literature in the history of the world. He keeps track of each new tablet of the old epic as it gets discovered, going back in time as far as he can go. Endlessly compiling, he is a man trying to contain the world, to keep it from bursting at the seams, to solidify a narrative so he can make sense of his, himself and everything around him. His desire to contain is reminiscent of Noah's art. It's a desire to be saved from oblivion, a longing for immortality. The tragedy of his life is the loss of his beloved encyclopedia and his eventual exile from his country and his elder son to whom he remains devoted despite their jagged history. And here I'll read a section from the book. Uh, Hamid is visiting his estranged brother, Omid, in New York. Uh, Omid has been leading a kind of tenuous, broken life, one that's marked by isolation and a sense of exile. Um, and in this passage, Omid's dog has just died. Omid had to put him down himself. And he tells Hamid a story about their father. I want to tell you a story, Omid said. He picked up a squishy ball from the floor and squeezed it, causing it to whimper. In the summer of 2003, he went on, New York suddenly went dark. It was the biggest blackout in the history of America. Baba and I were at the Metropolitan Museum for an exhibit on the art of the third millennium BCE. It covered all the land from the Mediterranean to the Indus, and there was even a section devoted to Gilgamesh. He must have been ecstatic, I said. He was, for months he had wanted to see it, but his heart troubles had already begun and we had spent the summer in emergency rooms and doctor's offices. This was our last chance as the show was to close just days later. So there we were at last among the lion headed birds and the lapis lazuli eyes and cuneiform clay tablets. When the hall went dark, we were standing before a statuette from Eastern Iran. 
They had named him Standing Male with a Scarred Face. His black body was covered in scales and a deep gash sliced the right side of his face. One eye was hollow, the other was encrusted with a white substance, which the caption said was calcium carbonate that once upon a time might have been a shell. It was a small statue, no more than 12 centimeters, but it was one of the most frightening things I'd ever seen. When Baba saw it, he stood before it transfixed and he remained there long after the lights went out, long even after the guards with their flashlights began ushering everyone out of the museum halls. He said, Omid, I saw this man in a dream. It was a hot afternoon sweltering without air conditioners and with the museum lights gone, I was feeling tired and apprehensive. Let's go, I said, the city has gone dark. There's nothing left to see. Baba said, I'm telling you that years ago, I saw this man in a dream. He came to me exactly like this, a man with a scarred face, one eye hollow, the other encrusted. And in this dream, the man was in his essence, your brother. I dragged him away and we followed the throngs out of the museum, exiting through the medieval gallery where the guards flashlights flickered on the altarpieces and tapestries once housed in European cathedrals. I felt as though all of us withdrawing from that dark museum with alarm and awe were contemporaries of the objects surrounding us. Did you believe him, I said, that he had seen the man in a dream and that I was that man? I did. He was so perturbed by the dream that I had to believe him. Later, I asked him when he had had that dream and he said, I don't know, perhaps it was the summer of 88. I remember that we had just bought the apartment and we're still deep in renovations. Throughout that summer, your mother and I slept among slabs of sheetrock, wooden tiles and dust. I was feeling unsettled. It was as if by building a new house, we were gutting the memory of the old one in Tehran and along with it, the memory of my sorrow over Hamid. Maybe that's why I had that bizarre dream. Omid's tale unnerved me. Signs and symbols still, still held meaning for me. Broken mirrors, black cats, crossed telephone lines, the beloved's face at the first appearance of a full moon. All of these carried messages from a universe I did not seek to control. Had Bobo known without actually knowing what I had become by that summer of 88? When we came out of the museum, Omid continued, the city was hushed and in disarray. The subways had shut down and with no traffic lights, Cars rolled down Fifth Avenue, confused, interrupted occasionally by hordes of pedestrians forcing their way through. Baba and I made our way down the museum steps, tiptoeing around the hundreds of people who sat perplexed, trying to devise a new way home. We walked downtown, heading eastward, passing by grocery stores whose shelves were quickly depleting. An ice cream shop was selling gelato cones for $1 a piece. It was, said the manager, a blackout sale. With Baba's heart condition, we had to keep pausing along the way, sitting on benches or in the lobbies of buildings whose doormen improbably welcomed us with grace. As night fell, an eerie mix of jubilation and disquiet filled the streets. Baba said, look what happens when the system is disrupted. Chaos, euphoria, madness. This has been the logic of crowds throughout time and all over the world. By the time we arrived home, mother was sitting in the dark, listening to a shortwave radio, an anemic candle casting shadows on the opposite wall. My heart sank. 
I felt like we were back in the revolution, back to the curfews, back to you. Baba must have had the same sensation because he said, Monir, you would not believe it. We saw Hamid at the Metropolitan Museum. My mother looked up perplexed. In the flicker of the candlelight, I saw that she had been crying. Yes, Baba went on, we saw him. Our He removed his shoes and stretched on the sofa. Mother searched my face, bewildered. <clears throat> I shook my head no, and she, retreating once again into her grief, where she now spent most of her days, turned up the radio. <clears throat> Treat the day like a snow day, the mayor of New York was advising. Your story frightened me, I said. What I'm trying to tell you, Omid said, is that he never stopped looking for you. He looked for you until the end, among the living and the dead. I ran my hand over his beat up sofa, dog first up to my palm. Omid, I said, how do you put down a dog? The same way you put down a man, he said. You hold him down and inject him with poison. The vet kept assuring me that it was the right thing to do, that the disease was killing my dog, not me, but I felt like a murderer nonetheless. The vet was right, I said, the dog was already dying. No matter how you reason, he said, witnessing a killing leaves you filthy. Yes, I said. He looked at my face intently, his eyes searching for the brother he had once known. Uh, another central conflict in the novel is between Hamid and the people he interrogates. But I chose not to include any actual passages of interrogation in the book, as I felt that I didn't want, that I didn't wish to uh, feed the world's endless appetite for scenes of violence involving the Islamic Republic. As with poverty porn, narratives of a violent Iran are a money-making machine. At the same time, I did not want to suggest that violence does not exist. My solution was to imply violence through allusion only, depicting two interrogation scenes that hinted boredom and absurdity rather than horror, and one kind of non-interrogation scene between Hamid and H, his father's old cartoonist friend. The scene is a kind of confession by Hamid, whereby he writes that he could speak of his actions, but won't. And here I'll read that second uh, excerpt. Um, and it's a short one. The confession, its supremacy in the fate of the accused clarifies the meaning of the interrogation, which we called Mosahebe interview. The word imbued the proceedings with a sterile, altogether banal sound. But when you understand, as I did that winter, that the confession was the grand prize, the lower crown of our Pythian games, then you can surmise that the interview was as unsterile as circumstances demanded. The confession was the sole evidence required for a conviction, the proof of proofs as one of our jurists called it. And who better than the accused to provide the words necessary to marshal his own case to its inevitable conclusion. Confession. Confiteri to acknowledge, from pateri to speak, etaraf from tarif to recount. I would, if I thought it useful, offer the account of my interview with H. I would write, for example, that when he entered my confessional and sat blindfolded facing the cement wall, listening to me as a Catholic hears the disembodied voice of the priest, he brought a finger to his forehead and placed it between his eyebrows the spot known as the third eye, gateway to spiritual purity and the point of contact between the forehead and the prayer stone. 
that he whispered something under his breath and when asked to repeat it, he said, it's just a line from a poem, it's useless here. That the tremor in his hand worsened as the day gave way to dusk when at last he told me of his hypoglycemia and I offered him three pieces of rock candy. That when I removed his blindfold and against all rules, I revealed to him the name of my father and my own. His green eyes narrowed and he said, pigeon flies with pigeon, hawk with hawk. I would write too of how I pressed him for names and monikers, dates and hours, opinions and dreams, beliefs and philosophies, crimes and sins, lovers and friends, and of how by day's end, he looked at me across the table between us my glass of tea and said, do with me what you will, but you will see me every time you bring a glass of tea to your mouth because I will be right there sitting across from you, a face you will be unable to get rid of. For the rest of your days, you will be having a discourse with me. H's warning to Hamid does in fact haunt him throughout his life, as does the artist's face, his goatee and his impish smile. Nearly three decades later, while sitting in a cafe, Hamid suddenly thinks of a reply to H. You could say that we are like the Greek symbol on a single coin broken in half, a witness to an exchange. He realizes at that moment that he and H will forever be linked, that captor and captive will remain key players in one, another, in one another's biographies. One cannot undo the memory of the other. But most of all, the central conflict in the novel is that between Hamid and his own heart. Though he is an interrogator, Hamid is more essentially a self-interrogator. And the novel is a kind of pilgrimage from ignorance to self-knowledge. Toward the end, as he finally engages in one rightful action made in deference to his daughter and a future generation, he says, if what prompted the change in my behavior fell short of repentance, it was nonetheless a final acknowledgement of who I was and a longing to shelter others from what I was capable of. My improvement, if you can call it that, lay not in an actual betterment of my character, but in the absolute acceptance of what the world had made of me and of what I, I had made of it. It's difficult to pinpoint exactly how a character forms in one's consciousness. And so I cannot say for sure how Hamid Mozaffarian appeared to me one summer afternoon, but I suspect that just as he and H remain inextricable, he and I have also been and will remain eternally interlinked. That he's a product of my imagination is a testament to an internal dialogue that I must have been having with myself long before I ever set pen to paper, long even before I knew the meaning of the word incongruity. Thank you. Thank you so much. That was wonderful. Um, we do have a few questions and comments coming in from viewers. So I'm gonna to try to group some together that are similar. Um, one viewer writes, is there a way to write about the self and grief without submitting to the commodification you refer to? And then another viewer writes um, along a similar line, you mentioned that you were conflicted about trading your and your family's grief for money and recognition by writing your first novel. What about the positive side of your first novel? That is providing many Iranians in exile and their children a window into the mistreatment of people, Jews in particular, in the post-revolutionary Iran. My daughter, born in the US, loved your book. Well, thank you for that. 
um, yeah, I mean, obviously, I think when you write something, and especially when you write it with goodwill, um, there are positive elements to it. I'm just referring to the state of mind that I was in after the publication of that novel. It's both, right? It's as with most most things, it contains multitudes. So on the one hand, yes, it came from a very real place, from a true place, and I think hopefully it did do something. I mean, as as long as it moved readers or made them think about something, that's a positive. But um, as soon as this is not just true of literature, it's true of art with anything, as soon as you're creating a an object that's going to be out in the world, um, it does become a commodity, unfortunately. So there is something, of, it's a kind of dichotomy, right? You do it from a very pure place, but it takes on another dimension. And that's something that I think most writers and artists may grapple with at some point. Um, yeah. Thank you. One viewer writes, thank you for your eloquent and sobering presentation. I just wanted to pass that along. And then another viewer writes, I did not have the chance to read your book, but I would like to ask if you could explain your approach to building the structure of your novel regarding political historical situations. Mainly, I am asking about the narrative flow. What do you think about Kundera's approach? The narrative flow. I mean, um, I try to kind of weave in uh, the politics, you know, into the characters, into the dialogue, into their histories. Um, yeah, um, I don't know if that answers the question, but I try to make it as seamless as possible. So, and I don't know that I'm always successful, but um, just to make it part of who they are um, and not have sort of expository. And sometimes, you know, it does become expository, but um, I try to weave it in as much as possible. Thank you. Is there a difference between the sense of isolation and alienation in East or Central European Jewish intellectuals and your experience, an Iranian Jewish woman? Ooh, um, I mean, within Iran or outside or... I think um, just comparing your experience, um, if, if there is a difference between isolation or alienation in these different groups. Yeah, I mean, I think what, what I've been drawn to is sort of the legacy of um, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it is Jewish on some level, certainly for Eastern Europeans. It's sort of the um, legacy of what you carry or the memory of what you carry. So um, there is a kind of generational memory that I think gets passed along. Uh, and there is a kind of isolation, um, a sense of um, disenfranchisement, I suppose. Um, yeah, and I think there is an affinity there. I don't know that I experienced that while living in Iran as, I mean, I was a child, first of all, but at the time I didn't experience it as a Jewish person. Uh, I didn't feel isolated, but I think 
the aftermath for all of us, not necessarily Jews, has been a sense of isolation. So it's that kind of break that, you know, I think is a shared space. Thank you. Another viewer says, thank you for two beautifully written and multi-layered novels. Do you think adopting a male narrator is another form of displacement, a familiar feeling to you? Interesting. It's possible. I, um, I've, I've been until now more drawn to writing from a male point of view. It's easier for me. It just comes more naturally, which is odd. But maybe that's a very good point, and I, I like that interpretation. Um, I'll take it. <laughs> Thank you. Um, another viewer comments, one could see some echoes of George Eliot's Middle March in your book, particularly a man at the center of the narrative trying to make sense of a turbulent world by a magnum opus. Yeah, I mean, I can't say that George Eliot was a direct influence, but... Um, that's correct. I mean, yeah, I, I, I'll take the comparison. <laughs> Thank you. Um, one viewer asks, who is the book being narrated to? Is it meant for an American audience or perhaps for the Iranian diaspora? Um, my hope is that it's for anybody. I didn't have a particular audience in mind. I. Um, I tried very hard not to over explain. I, I, I felt tired of that need to, you know, that we constantly, we being exiles of some sort, having to constantly explain what happened, you know, back to history 101 for us. But um, so I tried to kind of assume a certain knowledge from the reader in this one. Um, and I think if they don't know certain things, they're not losing anything from the story. So. Um, hopefully for anyone, yeah, it's, it's not over explained, I hope. Thank you. And a viewer says, you said there was too much and not enough when writing this book. Do you anticipate writing another book that addresses similar themes? So actually, the too much and not enough was about the, the second book that I was working on for many years that never got published. Um, so yeah, I don't know that it's true for this one. And do I anticipate, not directly, I mean, not in the immediate future, not, I mean, Iran related, yes, but not about this particular issue, I don't think, not, any, not anytime soon. Thank you. And as a writer, how has the pandemic affected you and your work this year? I mean, it's been hard as for everybody. Um, I uh, I wish I were one of those people who just sat down and knocked out a whole manuscript during the pandemic. I'm not that person. I've been, you know, affected by it as most people. Uh, I've also had personal situations that have been difficult. So it hasn't been an easy time. Um, yeah, at the same time, you know, as writers, I think we're more used to isolation. So it's a little bit easier, I think, than your average person. Um, yeah. Thank you. Um, George Steiner has written of diaspora as the historic experience of Jews. Was there a difference between the sense of diaspora for you or your parents in the US, in Iran and in the US? 
Um, in Iran, again, I, I didn't feel it. I didn't feel myself as part of a diaspora, maybe because I was a child, but I just, um, I think also at that time, Jews were at least certain Jews in Tehran were much more um, sort of integrated. So I didn't feel, I felt, or we felt as part of the mainstream. We didn't feel like we're part of the diaspora. Here, I would say, yeah, we're, we're part of many diasporas, the Iranian diaspora, the Jewish diaspora. For me, um, from my father's side, and a little bit from my mother's, also the Iraqi Jewish, or just Iraqi diaspora. So yeah, there are many. Um, cut ties, I suppose, or, or a sense of wandering, yeah, from the origins. You mentioned you followed Iranian culture. Can you comment on the status of the art and literature scene? Within Iran? I mean, um, I won't claim to be an expert on this. I know that um, it's a thriving, especially in visual art, I know that there's so much going on that's very interesting. In literature too, um, fortunate, unfortunately we don't get a lot of translations, um, but yeah, I mean, again, I, I don't want to speak um, as an expert on this, but I know that there's a lot of interesting work that's being done, um, new ways of thinking about the world, new forms, merging of forms, East and West. Um. Thank you. Wonri um, writes, if I'm not mistaken, Septembers of, Shiraz, Septembers of Shiraz was made into a film. Do you see this book being turned into a film? No. <laughs> um, that was a very bad experience for me and I would never repeat it. <laughs> It was um, it was really quite unfortunate. So um, I would say absolutely not. Yeah, understand. Thank you. Um, we have just a few minutes left. Um, so another viewer comments: um, "Beautiful and eloquent." As you said, many generations of Iranians experienced this ongoing trauma that you've discussed. Um, are there are there any last words you would like to say, perhaps about anything you are working on now, or any final thoughts? Um, no, I mean I won't talk too much about what I'm working now. I always <laughs> uh, find that difficult. No, I'm just really I I thank you so much for having me, and to everyone who came, I'm grateful for your attention. It's it's a pleasure to share some thoughts with you. So. Thank you so much. We wish we could have hosted you in person, but we're so glad we were able to hear from you and hear about your book. And thank you for sharing some readings from the book as well. Um, for everyone who's viewing, there's a link to the publisher um, in the chat if you'd like to follow the book and follow the rest of Ms. Sofair's work. Um, thank you for spending the time with us. And this event was recorded. We'll upload it to our YouTube channel in the next few weeks for anyone who missed it. Um, thank you so much and stay safe and hopefully we'll see you soon. Yeah, thank you so much.